Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Biodiversity is under threat as never before. Bees and other pollinators are in decline. Our skies are emptying of birds. And the promised targets to protect 30% of land and sea by 2030 seem little more than a pipe dream. The National Farmers Union called the government's targets on tree planting, water pollution, rewilding, irrational and unachievable. They think farmers need to focus on producing food, fibre and energy on farm and thereby protecting the rural economy and maintaining food security. Do we have a problem with farming and is it time for a rethink? Welcome to this episode of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. My guests today are both farmers from farming families, but their approach is very different. Dominic Buskell is project manager at Wild Ken Hill, known to many listeners, I'm sure, not just from our conversation back in 2021, but as the recent home for BBC's Winter Watch programme. Dominic, welcome back to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be back. Martin Lines is a farmer and contractor from South Cambridgeshire and a specialist in farm conservation management. He's also chair of the steering group for the Nature Friendly Farming Network UK. Martin, hello and good to have you on the podcast. Good morning and it's lovely to see you. I painted a rather bleak picture of the state of nature and farming just then, but I think it's fair to say we are in a crisis and farmers and land management is at the heart of the discussion about that crisis. Martin, have I been unfair to farmers and the NFU or do you think we have a problem? The the clear evidence is we have a problem. Biodiversity is in free fall, the uh, burden index is is, severely depleted and much of our farm landscape is hostile to, to nature if you really look at it. Um, when you look at many farm landscapes and farmers' fields up and down the country, there's no space for nature within that landscape. Um, and we know that we can have both. We can make space for some environmental measures and farming a way that's nature-friendly that actually can tackle some of those problems. So I do think we have a problem, but I do think we have the, the solutions in front of us. So, so why is it, you think, not wishing to kind of beat up on the NFU, but why is it, do you think, that that, that big organisation that represents many, many farmers is saying that actually we should just be focusing on, you know, on food production, we shouldn't be, and food security. And at this time of, you know, cost of living crisis, everybody wants access to, to, to cheaper food. And we need our food security to be, you know, foremost, I guess, in planning. And we're, we're concerned about, you know, imports and things. Why is it, do you think, that they're pursuing this, what feels like an anti-nature line? I, I can't answer for them. Um, I, I'm a member of the NFU, but I, that... that their, some of their language doesn't represent my thinking. Um, but what I can recognise is that in the past, farmers have received payments for producing more food post-war, and that was needed at a short period of time. And actually, so that are they chasing to increase payments and wanting that funding? But actually, if the reality is, if we really look at what farmers deliver, they're an asset manager of natural capital and they deliver a range of products from that landscape. Food is just one of them. Over 60% of the food, you know, the grains we produce feed livestock. Well, if we move the livestock about a bit and put them on the grass a bit more, only 20% or 25% of our most productive soils are producing food we eat. We don't really have a food security crisis and a, and a a delivery. What we have is an environmental and climate crisis that will, if we don't deliver the solutions, undermine that food security and we choose to offshore so much of our food production from other countries so i do think we have we have an issue of food production 
But I think we need to rethink our food system and our balance in our landscape management to deliver a multifunctional landscape. And sometimes the voice of the NFU doesn't always reflect that. Dominic, you've been doing it differently for some years at Welkin Hill, haven't you? Because you are a producing farm as well as as, as, as an area of amazing rewilding activity. Yeah, I mean, like Martin, I think he used the term multifunctional land use. I think, you know, we see land as needing to deliver a variety of outcomes uh, and outputs, one of which is sustainably produced food, but should also include carbon sequestration, uh, biodiversity, um, and access to green space, and, and probably a, a longer list than that too. Um, and I think, you know, the debate we're getting into now, it, it can be a little polarised. And I think, you know, I'm, I also read the article you're referring to, Amanda, and, you know, I think in fairness to the NFU, you know, some of their language about this stuff is, is it does feel a little poor and reactionary to me. And uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a massive fan of, of some of the comms I, I see from there. But firstly, I, I don't think it's necessarily representative of a lot of their members. And secondly, I think, you know, if we were in Chatham House, I think, you know, most senior folks at the NFU uh, and many of the members would agree with what I just said uh, I, and what Martin said, i.e. that, you know, farmers or land managers uh, are here to, to produce what the nation needs and what, what the nation needs is, is no longer just food. It's a, it's a basket of different things. Um, and I think we, we'd all happily go and do that. Now, I suppose at Wildcan Hill, what, what we've done is we've tried to go blank canvas. Let's try and throw aside convention. Let's have a look at our land. Let's have a look at our soils. Um, what's it good for today? Uh, what, you know, where are the useless bits that aren't delivering much for anyone? Um, and let's think about the different land uses that we could use um, to deliver that basket of goods. And, and in our case, and this wouldn't be the same for everyone, you know, we've got a mixture of stuff going on. We've, we've got what I would call traditional conservation. So very active, you know, human led conservation, you know, protecting fragile ecosystems. We have got a rewilding. Uh, I know this is audio only, but I'm doing quote marks. We've got a rewilding or, or wilding project, um, you know, about 25% of the, of the area. And that's focused on the poorest quality, you know, ex farmland. Uh, you know, to deliver biodiversity and carbon. And then we still farm, as you say, we farm our productive soils and we do that in, in a sort of a sustainable manner as we as we can, which we kind of call regenerative along with, with many others. So, yeah, and hopefully we, we, we do deliver that basket of goods and we can address these interlinked problems of climate, uh, sustainable fruit production, biodiversity, public health. I don't, I mean, and you're right when you say that, 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 were we to get probably some farmers in a room together without, you know, without necessarily the threat of being overheard, they would probably agree with you. And I, I must say all the farmers I talk to, you know, care for the land, longevity of the land, um, you know, good land management is always top of their agenda. So it's kind of depressing, isn't it, that we seem to have the debate is being polarised by, by you know, and it's, you know, as you say, it was just one article, but they were reported comments to, to the government in as part of the consultation around the environment Um act and the targets they're in. So it's it's sad that we've got to this polarised situation, but I'm really interested by what you've just said, Martin, about the, the, the use of our agricultural land to produce foodstuffs for, for feeding livestock. I mean, that has got to be part of the issue, hasn't it? We have got to change our 
our, our, our ways of eating and, this, and, the, and the, the food that we eat in order to better use the land and also maintain food security. So if we ate a lot less meat or even a portion of less meat, we wouldn't need as much land to be taken up with producing food for, for, for livestock, you know, either grazing or, or, or actually, you know, feed. I, th- I think we really need to look at the landscape and feed our, our stomachs, our hearts and our minds. And it's the balance in different landscapes doing different things. And we know that uh, globally, uh, livestock production is having an impact on, on our environment. And if we ate a little bit less meat and a lot better and know where it comes from, and I think UK farmers have that ability to demonstrate a good practice of livestock management that can deliver multifunctionality and have more trees and thing, and and green spaces and water management. But I, I think we should be honest about having that discussion because we need to focus around our food and our diets and under, get the consumers and all of us to understand the impact our choices of food has to our landscape and connect back to the farmer. If, if every person could understand where their food comes from and actually the, the field almost or understand the farmer's process – I think we'll end up with a better diet and a healthier society. A little bit less meat, uh, knowing where it comes from uh, and go back to sort of valuing that piece of meat can really deliver a better farm system while we get rewarded for the additional public goods that we can fit in to make the business model work because we're all trying to run businesses. That's the crux of some of this, though, isn't it? It's about the rewards and the subsidy system because the system's changed. You know, post Brexit, the system has changed, and you know the the new system of payments were about rewarding farmers for for, for positive impact impact on the on the landscape, weren't they? But 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 those subsidies, my sense so is, the subsidies might not be working. Is that right? I'll, I'll have to come in there and say they're not subsidies; they're a payment okay. for an outcome, and we must stop using the word subsidy because if you only subsidise part of an action. Who's paying the other part? So I think we need to just really, you know, where is the rewards coming and where does public need to fund action that they need to see? And and that's a public good, but also where the private markets come in. So if I'm providing other goods or some grain or some food, does that contract cause harm to the landscape? And does that compensate within the supply chain for for the positive or negative effect it has? I think we're moving into completely different mindset and market from a single application for an area-based payment to a multifunctional landscape with different revenue streams. And hopefully, the balance between public and private finance, the right market payments for goods, helps farmers deliver a healthy business that helps the rural economy working. So how do we get those payments right so all farmers can benefit? Because I, you know, speaking to farmers generally, they say, we've been, you know, Farmers who've been doing this for a while, who've had good practice, who've had wild margins for 20 years, who've been doing all of the right things, are not are going to struggle to make their farms even more, you know, wildlife friendly. And my understanding is that they might therefore suffer under the new payment regime. Is that right? I don't think I don't think they will. It'll be changing and the rental values and the landscape values will change. Um, but actually, if we look at the maximum sustainable output of any piece of land, that will have a different business model. And if we use more natural processes of sunshine and rain and move away from fossil fuel based inputs, there becomes a natural place where our businesses work. But for some, that may not be an economical living value you know, to, to, for an income. They may need other, other roles of getting funding in. But we can only use our landscape to produce as much as we can without harming it or harming the wider environment.
Dom, you've been doing this for a while, haven't you? This sort of, you know, as you said, this basket that you described, this kind of patchwork of different ways of making the land work, some of which have been, you know, payment-based and other, others have been a bit more experimental, haven't they? I mean, is this, do you think this is a model that you could replicate? Because Wild Can Hill is quite a special place. It's not, possibly not everybody has the same opportunities that you have from the land that you farm. No, absolutely. And I, I don't ever advocate for a replication of our, land use model at Wild Ken Hill of those those three sort of slices that I referred to. I think what I probably advocate for is, um, you know, con- context-led, land manager-led decision-making, um, to, you know, in pursuit of addressing these crises that we've discussed. Um, so, you know, some of the very basic principles we used were, you know, how one, how productive is this land for agriculture? Um, and, you know, we, for example, our, our rewilding area sits in a place where we were losing money to farm it, like quite, quite a substantial amount of money. Uh, we had very light soils riddled with black grass, which was preventing any sort of yield um, and, and requiring quite a lot of applications of chemicals even to get that poor yield. Uh, so doing quite a lot of environmental damage in the meantime. And... Secondly, uh, you know, so I think about the, the idea, you know, are there any other public goods or key outputs that this area is already providing? And the answer to that was no, really. You know, um, it, was, it was a site that was in between two county wildlife sites, um, you know, it was close to the within two kilometres of the wash, you know, almost designated sort of one of our last wildernesses. Um, you know, sh- should we be farming? Yeah, and that, the answer to that question, you know, for me, and I, I came from outside of farming, you know, was was a pretty categorical no. Uh, you know, when I when I put the facts in the in the cold light of day. Now, when you take those sorts of principles, and there'll be a variety of others, you know, and you apply them to different land holdings, and I, you know, I think that's what uh, that's what we do as land managers. You know, you'll get a you'll get a variety of outputs. So I never say to everyone, you you know, you need to do the Wild Ken Hill model. That would be nonsense. But I, I do think that we need to think harder about our role uh, in in addressing these these crises. You know, agriculture. Uh, it's pretty much the only sector in the UK economy which didn't decrease emissions between 2008 and 2020. It's a that's a pretty bad mark uh, on our record. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's something that we collectively need to uh, to think a bit harder about. And, and yeah, it, it, it's it's many many things. It's food system. It's mindset. It's it's all sorts of stuff. Um, it's the my mind the you know the biggest challenge of our generation. Mm. And how do we do that? I mean, you know, we've got advocates like you um, who, who are doing this. We've got, uh, you know, smaller f- farmers who are thinking about swapping to a more regenerative agricultural base. I mean, what? Do, how do we get from, from where we know the problem is towards some of the solutions? I mean, Martin, is it a question of education? Is it a question of, of sharing best practice? Is it a question of changing legislation and payment systems? Or kind of, I suppose the answer is probably a combination of all of those. But but w- what do you think the, the the kind of route map is? Because you know we're in the decade of action. We've only got seven years to hit our twenty thirty goal of reducing emissions, as as Dominic said, and we're nowhere near it from the farming sector. H- how are we going to do this? Uh, I, th- I think uh, pot farming policy has caused some of the problems, and the way it's driven to farm to the very edge of a field that is being changed in the UK. So that's a positive. Some of our supply chains are realising the impact that's having on the landscape. So that's they're now really starting to focus around how can they be nature positive and climate benefiting in the supply chain. 
but I also think it's uh, helping farmers share knowledge and re- you know changing their mindset from it goes back to this part of the NFU's message is all about food production. Well, if it's only the only focus around one output from your landscape, you're going to harm the other bits. And if you see nature as a as an asset uh, for pollinators, predatory insects, reducing costs, and it's helping farmers, how do we get them to see that? And then looking at that multifunctional use of your land, where is the be- most productive bits? Where is the bits you could add some nature in or some flood mitigation? And who can help fund some of that to make that work? And I think that the, the, to really accelerate the change and speed up the recovery of nature, it's the farmer-to-farmer, peer-to-peer learning that really needs the investment to help farmers see what works on the ground and help them to understand how that fits into a business model for their landscape. And that's what you're doing at, at the Nature Network. Is that part of your remit? Yeah, we sort of share case studies and, and, and produce some reports and trying to find funding funding to help that peer-to-peer on-the-ground Pieces, but we're also sort of uh, doing the campaigning and engaging with policymakers to try and join the two up, because there's no point having one part, well, the, the policy asking one thing if that's not joined up on the on the on the farm. So that, that we're trying to help the farmers engage locally and nationally, and and sort of champion that way of farming that we can see, and many farmers tell me regularly that it's more benefiting their business and benefiting their mental health, their local communities in farming in a more nature-friendly way. Mm. And I guess it makes the farms more resilient. I mean, Dominic, you had a really difficult summer last year, didn't you? Because you had that huge fire at Wildcan Hill. I mean, presumably as a result of the incredible drought and the very high temperatures that we suffered as a, as a country for six or seven weeks, particularly up in East Anglia. I mean, how, how has Wildcan Hill coped? Because that was a big chunk of land, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I would, I'd start by taking it one step up, which is... We had an, an exceptionally dry year, which, you know, one thing that happened uh, as a result of that was a fire across 80 acres of really brilliant wildlife habitat. And that was, you know, pretty shocking and scary to see. And, um, yeah, pr- upsetting. Uh, and it, it takes us several steps back in conservation for some species, um, in particular turtle doves, which were breeding there. But, uh, you know, we also had incredibly poor crop yields. Um we also had our, our grassland produce very little biomass. Um, so, you know, in our in our sort of nascent rewilding area, we might have to supplementary feed over the next uh, few weeks um, simply because the grass didn't grow enough uh, in the spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, ultimately climate change causing more extreme weather patterns impacting farm businesses. Um, you know, to circle back to your first point, the the single biggest long-term risk to food security is climate change. So maintaining the status quo uh, of having too much intensive farming in the UK is simply not going to work. We're actually all going to end up uh, having a really difficult time. So if you, you, you know, if you start with the, with I think what should be the universally accepted premise of we're going to have to change. It, it then becomes a case of, of how do you do it? And so the fire was 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 scary and shocking, but it's almost re- redoubled our kind of our motivation to to advocate for change in the sector. But do you think you're being listened to? Because, I mean, you know, we've been having these conversations on Planet Pod for, for quite a long time. And, and you know, we often have the pleasure of talking to, to people like you, Dominic, and to, to you know, Izzy at, at, at NEP and other real proponents of, of, of wilding or regenerative farming. And, you know, but 
but I worry that 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 we're we're in our echo chamber. We're talking to each other because we know this is important, and we've 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 read the memo and we're there. Do, you, do how are you going to you know speed up? Because this is a change that we need to implement now. We can't wait for another five years while well you know people work out how to do it. We need we need action now, don't we? How, how are we going to get that? Is it public pressure? Do you think, or you know, Don, Martin talked about policy, but how can we as citizens and how can you as farmers really push this? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a million dollar question, but I, th- I think uh, there's a role in, for, you know, for all sorts of pressures in the ecosystem. So, you know, I understand, for example, that it's, it's highly disruptive, uh, but a part of me is grateful for the folks at Extinction Rebellion for raising some of these issues into, into the national consciousness. And I'm not necessarily saying I would join them in protest, but I, I do think they have an important role in the ecosystem. Um, I think, circling back to the first part of your question, we are, though, I think beginning, well, not, not beginning, we are, we are definitely seeing, um, you know, this, these sorts of ideas spread within the sector. Um, you know, Martin's network, which we signed up to as soon as I heard about it, uh, you know, the numbers of members of that are growing, I think, very rapidly. Uh, Martin probably will have attended Groundswell like me last year. Uh, I think that, also, that, that so that's a regenerative farming conference for those who don't know in, in sort of late June time, and that's gone from a you know a slightly niche event to something which hosted I think around five thousand people last year. Uh, now, those not might all be individual farms, but there's a lot of land managers there. There's a lot of people interested in uh, this this type of farming, and so I'm not you know and, and certainly on the nature front, I I also for the first time sense that a lot of folks in the sector in the conservation sector feel like they have a tailwind and you know people who've mm. worked for 50 60 years in nature conservation for the first time saying it actually feels like you know government and business and society are starting to get behind this stuff um, they really mm. understand it um, now i'm not saying that the, the, the speed of change is necessarily enough it it, it probably isn't right now um, but I am encouraged by some of the things that I see day to day in our lives. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, we can only do what we can do. And at Ken Hill, it's, we, we, we've decided to try and be a, an exemplar. Um, we, we, we try things, we measure them, we're open book about our results, and we tell the story as much as we can. Um, and ultimately, that's what we can do. And I, if, if everyone does, you know, what they can do. Um, I think we'll, we'll be in a great place in 2030. And, and the public can, can engage with Ken Hill, can't they? I mean, you have a, do you have a, a festival coming up? Well, we had a, we had a festival, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, we had a, we kind of had a, it was a nature, it was a nature festival, but it had farming themes and all sorts going on. And it was, there was well-being and creativity and it, it was brilliant. Um, about 600, you know, people come together on a cold but bright Saturday in September um, to sort of celebrate the natural world and our and our place in it, um, and that and that's exactly the sort of thing where you know I hope that people walk away from that going, oh, what you know, what can I do with with my life, with my spending power, with my job to mm. um, to mm. influence these things? Um, and yeah, we need to have another one because we missed it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you, you, everyone here would be most welcome back. We, we are, I think we're we're pretty sure we'll have something like that again. Uh, but gosh, it, it took a lot out of us to organise it. So we're we're, uh, we're we're biding our time before we kind of rush gung ho into the next event. 
but it was it was it was there was a lot of ingredients for, you know for a, a successful long term event that had, you know celebrates the natural world and 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 martin you presumably would like people to to join the network even if they're even if they're not farmers is that appropriate because i think i'm sensing that from from dominic the sense that we we we're in this together, aren't we? And we can't be a, you know, I'm over here as a consumer or I'm over here as a policymaker and I'm over here as a farmer. We need to all have this conversation together. So so is there an opportunity for people to get engaged in the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, so the, the network is free to join for farmers, members of the public and organisations, and there's different levels of you know, public support member. Um, and I mean, it's, it's about getting people together. And we're also, as a network, bringing in various conservation groups and farming groups to have a consensus in the middle of actually what can we do? What, how could farming play an important role in producing our food, delivering nature recovery and climate mitigation? And it's about bringing things together. For too long, things have been polarised. Things are, you know, from one end of the conservation extreme, extreme to, the, to the farming industry extreme. And actually, the solutions are in the middle. And it's about how mm. do we navigate that path to collectively and get as many on board on that bus as public and organisations and I do feel the wind of change is, is really turning. And I see it within the industry. I talk to lots of farmers and public. They, they are seeing it and wanting to know how. How can they get involved? Where can they buy their food from that's having a positive impact? And connecting the yeah. you know, consumer with, with landscapes. We've talked to many of the public. We've been doing some um, jobs where we're getting uh, public to come out and plant hedges and trees to, to take climate action on farms and help farmers deliver solutions. So I think collectively we can do that. And through the network, we're trying to join as much as that up within our capacity as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it, I guess we're always mindful too that, that you know, being able to choose your, you know, locally sourced, organically reared, virtually personally named piece of meat from your farmer down the road is actually a privilege. And it's a privilege that comes with, you know, a certain sort of economic socioeconomic status, certainly economic status, we need to think about making sure that that we're producing good quality food that's affordable for all as well, don't we? So that, you know, not only do we need to change our diets to do that, we also need to make sure that that, that is part of this, this relationship that we have with farmers. And it isn't just, you know, those who can afford to go to the bougie farmers markets <laughs> um, so I, 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 who get to do that. Yeah, I don't think it is just about the local farmer down the road and a, and a privileged role for food. We need clear labelling systems. We need honesty within our supply chains of actually where is this food come from? Where How is it produced? So locally may, may mean the other end of the country. It may mean come from the continent because that was the best place to produce that product. We, we can't be overprotective of it, but we need to have the, the right food from the right places and everybody to understand what is the ingredients, what is the animal welfare package that came with that or the biodiversity output from that food production. Because that's only, the only way society can really buy in. And, and I think some of the supply chains are starting to wake up and focus that there's a, there's a, there's a, a win for their business if they can get up there fr- first because the consumers are getting really interested in, in understanding their food. Mm. And maybe farming different things as well. I mean, we quite often talk to scientists on the podcast who are talking about alternative sources of, of food, you know, of food. I mean, we can, you know, widening our diets and eating other things and, and you know, spreading, you know, not necessarily opening seaweed on our pizza, but certainly just looking at a different way of eating and a different relationship with food, which feeds into this whole kind of nature network, doesn't it, Dominic? And your point about well-being and health and, and, and the kind of collective, you know, the collective sense of, of, of well-being across the, 
across you know our, our natural world is really really important when it comes to diet and people's attitude absolutely and and you know we we, we as farmers or land managers sit at one end of this sort of value chain um the reality is that the whole thing is going to have to change uh you know pretty significantly uh if you know land is going to play any role in um ad- addressing climate change and biodiversity loss um and so you know r- right in the middle there is is uh is diet um and um there's some really really interesting like pr- problems here you know especially when we look at england because you know i i think um you know, most organisations who've looked at this in, in detail would say that, you know, if, if you want to have enough land to do net zero uh, and levelling up and 30 by 30, and then, you know, a government comes along and puts a legal limit on the amount of food that, you know, we can import, there's probably not going to be enough land to do all of those things. Um, and one of the reasons there's probably not enough land is because, we use it quite inefficiently to grow food. Um, so, you know, we've, you've mentioned the, uh, the, you know, the amount of bread that is used for um, intensive livestock and poultry. Uh, you know, that, that, that realistically has to change. And, um, you know, some of the companies like Hodma Dodds who are pioneering, um, so, you know, and creating supply chains for uh, different sorts of grains and pulses, which are very, very good for us to eat. Uh, we're going to have to see a lot more of, of that coming to and, and uh, mimicked changes in our diets. And that that's like really tough. And I, personally, I find it really interesting mm. as to how that's all going to pan out. Yeah. And I think it's that it's that sense of a collective activity. We need everybody. We need the producers and the suppliers and we need the big, big food manufacturers in this conversation, as well as the, you know, the small farmers and the artisan producers and the big land managers. We need it. We need everybody around the table, don't we? And, 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 you know, perhaps that's our, our campaign for 23 is to get people to talk and to share. We, we should draw this to a close. It's absolutely fascinating. We could probably talk for another, at least another half an hour, but is there, is there one thing that you'd, that you'd have listeners to the podcast do? Is there, or, or what would your call out for, for citizens or government ministers or policymakers or other farmers? What would that be? Martin, what would be your one call for action? Oh, um, understand where your food comes from and the impact it has on our on our landscapes and if you see some good practice you know celebrate it but also if you see some poor practice question it um, because unless we you know look focus on what's harming problem you know causing harm we need to focus on that but also need to celebrate what good is happening and i think we can really all join together in in making the transition to a, a better planet uh, happen a lot quicker mm. dominic visit a farm, you know, come and come and yeah. learn and see how it's done and connect with how your food is produced and the challenges and the opportunities and the costs and the benefits. Once we understand that, I think we'll be in a much better place. Yeah. And my experience of farmers is that they're always happy to talk about what they do. So, <laughs> you know, open days um, and other occasions. Thank you both so much. And, and, and you know, it's great to catch up with you, you Dominic, and I hope things continue to go well at Welkin Hill. And at some point we'll come up and, and actually see it in person. That would be amazing. Um, and Martin, really good to meet you. And, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts and ideas. Stay with us, everybody, because we have, as always, our animal vegetable mineral slot. But for now, thank you to my guests, Dominic and Martin, for being here today. Thank you for having us. PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. 
For more, visit akilmanagement.com. Hello, Jim. That sounded like an open invitation to go and tramp around the field a bit, didn't it? It did, didn't it? And it was uh, you know, really interesting to see a different perspective on, on our farming and uh, also worrying to think that you know, we, we actually have to do something, do something pretty urgently to, uh, to protect nature and also to, to pr- produce the amount of food that we need. To... Mm. Yeah, we need a whole systems rethink, don't we? Which is what I think the consultants would say it would be. But it's nice to know that there are farmers who are doing this and um, I just go, I feel frustrated because they probably just don't get enough of a voice. I'm really glad that we can get them onto the podcast and yeah, talk to them yeah, because absolutely. they're clearly not in a minority. It's just we don't always hear from them, do we? We just that, hear from right. the, yeah. the, the big agri-barons who shout the loudest. Mm. So what are you going to surprise us with this week for animal, well, vegetable or mineral? Ah, good question. Um, well, I, I, I don't know. I suppose you know, reflecting on some of the things I've been doing, I mean, like a lot of people, uh, across the UK recently, I took part in the RSPB's Big Garden Bird Watch. Um, you know, and it's always exciting to to see what what comes into the garden in the, in your allotted hour as you sit there, you know, either outside freezing cold or, in, in my case, inside with my mug of tea. Uh, and I managed to spot about eleven different species, uh, which was really great. And it's probably more than I've spotted for for a number of years. But uh, and I think across the UK so far, an amazing, you know, almost five million birds have been recorded which is really encouraging given what we've just heard about you know the decline in biodiversity and the, and the decline in the bird index so you know that, that so it's a large number but it still is a serious issue in terms of you know of, of the birds that are that are, we're losing um, but the question for you amanda okay so and, and you've got to get a bit of a clue because we're talking about birds but you know what can smash its head uh, against a tree about 20 times a second without causing itself damage well, I mean, I'm no bird expert, and you are. And I have to say, I didn't find that many species. I had about six. And then I cheated and counted the rooks in the field behind my house. So maybe that's seven. Um, probably a woodpecker, would yeah, I say? Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. That's one of the birds that I was really hoping I was going to see when I did the, the bird watch recently. Uh, but, uh, and it does occasionally visit our garden. It's the great spotted woodpecker. Uh, you know, really striking birds. I'm sure you're you know, very well. They're about the size of a blackbird, sort of white and black mainly, but with this fantastic distinctive red flash on the back of its head and, and on, on its rump under its tail. So, you know, you can often hear them before you see them. They've got this sort of sharp, squeaky sort of call. And sometimes this, you know, it's quite a rapid call. But, but the real giveaway is there through a rapid sort of type of drumming. Oh, it's good, wasn't it? Shall I do that? Yeah, is that do. good for, for good. radio, I think? Yeah, that's uh, the know, bit so- I get. I never, I never see them. I only ever hear them. Yeah, exactly. You know, so they're pe- that's them obviously pecking away, you know, driving their bills into the tree. But, you know, and they do it to communicate, um, perhaps with, a, you know, prospective mates, uh, but also to get insects, you know, to try and excavate the insects and, and or even to hollow out a nest hole, particularly in the spring sort of time. But, but it is amazing, isn't it? How, you know, they do this sort of 20 times a second. They're bashing their heads against the, against the tree. Uh, and they reckon to do that at about six meters per second, which, which is 13, 14 miles an hour, which, you know, if you imagine even just dry, bumping your car into a tree 14 miles an hour, you'd probably do a bit of damage, wouldn't you? And, and the deceleration on each peck is about a thousand times the force of gravity. So it, it's really absolutely staggering, isn't it? You know, if you and I did that, well, you know, it'd be fatal, wouldn't it? No, I don't think. So how so how come? How can they do that? I mean, um, and is it their heads or is it just their beaks that are doing the? Well, the, the, it's, the banging. 
Well, I mean, they're kind of hopefully the two are attached to me, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's not actually, well, you know, it's actually the beat bit, isn't it, that's making contact with yeah, the beat. Well, so, sorry, uh, stupid uh, question, uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, no, it's not a stupid question, Matt. It's a very, very good question. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of studies, and it was initially thought that it was because they've got some sort of shock absorber in their, in their head, uh, which is partly true. But, you know, if you think about a shock absorber, that kind of the very you know nature of a shock absorber, it means that they, they're not going to get such a, you know, a heavy bash, as it were. So... Uh, which is what they need to, to start dislodging insects, etc. But some of the latest research uh, suggests that there are a number of things, as you'd imagine, which enable it to sort of peck so fast and so hard without causing damage. First, there's very little space between the brain and the skull. It's called the subdural space. Um, so their brains, brains don't bump around as they would do in a sort of human brain. So that's, that's really important. Um, the, the brains are longer top to bottom than back to front, if that makes makes sense. Mm-hmm. So okay. the force is spread over a, a larger brain area. Uh, they've got specially adapted what are called hyoid bones, and the hyoid bones are sort of like a, a U-shaped bone, which is just above the, 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 the voice box. Um, and in the woodpecker, it goes underneath the skull, round the back of the skull, over the top of the skull, and then back. To the front, so it's kind of like a safe, you know, a seat belt or a safety belt. So that kind of stops the stops the the skull from moving around or the brain from from moving around. So, I mean, that's pretty pretty impressive, isn't it? The lower and the upper parts of their bills or their beaks are different lengths, and so when they drive into the wood, it kind of distributes the force in in a slightly different way, and so it protects the protects the brain that way. And they also have sort of spongy like plates uh, in different parts of their skulls, which do act as some sort of a shock absorber. Or they certainly moves the force away from their brain so i mean that's you know uh, isn't that incredible so just amazing (laughs) i know crikey so amanda next time you get asked uh, how much wood would a woodpecker peck if a woodpecker could peck wood um you may not know the answer but you will know why why they can do it without 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 hurting themselves exactly but i mean it's isn't that fantastic i think many many other amazing facts that uh we'll 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 Yep. talk about on animal vegetable mineral but that uh, puts woody woodpecker in a whole new light i just think it's extraordinary isn't it and if you needed proof not that we do need proof but if you needed proof about the extraordinary ability of nature and evolution and the natural world to create these miracles um that would be it wouldn't it i mean you I know. know it's just it's it's yeah. Uh, yeah if listeners could see me i'm sitting here with my mouth open really because i'm pretty gobsmacked yeah. by that i just and I, and, I, and I suppose the point is that these things haven't just suddenly no. you know develop you know the whole theory of, of the survival of the fittest and, th- and there must be so many um variations which didn't quite succeed and where they, they, you know but gradually through evolution yeah you know that particular creature has de- has developed that type of that system in order for it to be able to continue to peck wood yeah there we are it could we need to preserve our precious landscape so our woodpeckers absolutely can go on do. pecking absolutely do. biodiversity um, biodiversity that's the answer farmers and more we all have a responsibility thank you jim as always absolutely fascinating just completely left field i don't know how you do it but there we are (laughs) and i i hope that everybody enjoys listening to these as much as i do um so thank you to jim and to our producer beth and obviously to our guests who were with us earlier you've been listening to planet pod join us again soon take care and goodbye You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.